Brad, what's up, man? Joe, it's good to be on with you, brother. What's going on? Man, I, I appreciate you being on here. I know uh, we, we have to we have to actually make this a last second trip, but I'm glad we worked it out. Uh, I'm super excited about this conversation. So I think you're a really interesting person. You got so you've got you've had one hell of a life in a lot of different ways, and I think it's it's just going to be an interesting conversation in general. But I've got Brad Hopkins with me. Um, some people might recognize the name, others might not. So so give the folks listening a sure. ten thousand foot view. Well, I was born. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> you <laughs> no, got to say the whole podcast. No, I now. will say I will say that uh, coming from relatively humble beginnings, um, it wasn't my plan to play pro football. Yeah, um, my plan really was to open up some sort of business in and around my parents, so that way I could always be close. I've never been a homebody, but I love family. So when I started thinking about my future and what I was going to do with it, basketball was what I thought was in my future, Joe. I spent a lot of time training, preparing myself physically and mentally. I used football as a tool to keep me in shape. Yeah. But this is high school, middle mm-hmm. school. This is high school. But then what happened is you start to see the opportunities start to progress with a guy my size. I'm only 6'5". And at the time, 270 pounds. There aren't many guards in the NBA that are wearing 270. <laughs> Even Zion Williamson is 10 pounds heavier than me. And, you know, carrying the rock would have looked a little different. Yeah. But, so it wasn't in the cards for me. But being a tight end was. Yeah. And that was, that's what I played in high school. So it then moved from me being a fat tight end to an offensive lineman in college, making the transition and just basically wanting to keep my scholarship. I competed. Yeah. And as you try hard in almost anything that you do, you know this, Joe, you know, good things can happen. And I tried hard because it was my opportunity. I tried so hard that I just ended up lucking into the league, you know, for about 13 years. Yeah. So there really wasn't any design about me being who I am and, and where I went in that in that part of my life. It just happened to be maximizing opportunities, really. Yeah. Now, I know you said lucking into the league, but you didn't just luck in. You were the 13th overall pick in 1993. So let's you played for 13 years. You're a two time pro bowler. I mean, you you started on a on a team that played in the Super Bowl. So it. it I'll give you a little bit more credit than you just gave yourself. I understand the I understand the concept, but you're a pretty big deal. It's it's you know what was you know you mentioned to me last week you, you would have your knee drained every week. Mm-hmm. Um, you know you've got no cartilage left, and that's after just grinding literally and figuratively just every single day to perfect your craft and and like you said, take advantage of that opportunity. I mean, you, you think through that transition from you know fat tight end to pro bowler, what did you learn about just working and taking advantage of that? You learn about who you are as a person, because in the end, all of those things that I went through, they never changed who I was internally. Meaning no matter what challenge was presented in front of me, I had to, you know, I had a goal in mind. I had to accomplish it, whether it was to survive in the year in the league, as long as I possibly could, could to sustain the lifestyle that I had come accustomed to, to living. Or whether it was trying to, you know, at least solidify a legacy of not only financial, but, you know, even namesake for my kids. Mm-hmm. You know, they become obviously the focus. And I think, Joe, ultimately, the first thing I wanted to be was a father. Yep. You know, I wasn't trying to go out there and get anybody pregnant. But, you know, just being in the parenthood role, being in the fatherly situation, and I, that probably comes from having a father that was always there for me. You know, there were so many things that we went through as a family that's the one thing I can say I was blessed with. Um, we did have struggles when I was a young kid, but I had both of my parents at my side. 
And that helped raise that helped kind of mold who I am as a person, having influence from from both parents. I know there are some tremendous single parents out there that do an awesome job of raising kids. But you cannot deny the advantage that a kid has from having both parents. And I was one of those kids, regardless of my economic situation. I still was surrounded by love. And a lot of times that one parent's love is just enough. Yeah. But when you have both parents pouring into you, it kind of helps design who you are. So it's just really about meeting those challenges, understanding what it would take for me to overcome those issues that were keeping me from where I needed to go and developing a plan. My dad used to work for John Deere Harvester for about 30 years. And he was in um, Illinois, in Illinois, yeah. in the Quad Cities, Moline. If you're if you're getting into details, middle of nowhere, Illinois, middle of nowhere, Illinois. Man, exactly. that sounds <laughs> thriving metropolis. <laughs> well, if you th- well, it was actually a booming industrial town. Makes sense. Due Back to the, the rock, out, due to the Rock Island lines, which carried you know a lot of coal and yeah. you know resources from one side of the United States to the other. You know, yeah. just that far north. And Moline was right smack dab in the middle of that trail. And there you saw on that Mississippi Riverbank, companies like John Deere, IH, Case, all these farm implement plants set up roots there. And that's where a lot of the hub of, you know, the agricultural industry you see come from, that area right there. Yeah. And my dad was um, part of a division called Work Simplification, Joe. And their mantra was work harder, not smarter. Or smarter, not harder. Okay. And I adopted that. You know what I mean? Trying to find, you know, the best, most efficient ways to do something without beating your head too hard up against the wall. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. A lot of times it works. A lot of times it doesn't. Yeah. I've heard some of the best coaches say there's never really any losing or, you know, like doing something the wrong way because there's learning in everything that you do. Some ways are easy to learn. Some ways aren't. Yeah. So what was your relationship like with your dad growing up? You know, when people would ask me, who was your, um, who's your idol? You know, who did you want to be like when you grow up? Phil Hopkins. Okay. Nobody knew who the hell I was talking about. You know what I mean? But, you but my dad was my rock star because my dad was always there. Yeah, you know, my dad was there to take me to band practice. My dad was there to take me to football practice and basketball practice. My dad was there in the stands on the road. You know, he was always there, a part of my life. And when you look at how you want to be in life, I like wearing ties because my dad wore ties when he was younger. You know mm. what I mean? So I always wanted to be somewhat who he was. I always viewed him as a leader. People around him respected him. So I carried myself in that same vein. I would want to earn your respect. It was nothing given to me, but in essence, I demanded it. Yeah. Because I would give it to you if you deserved it. Yeah. So, so let's talk about being, you know, in your teenage years, you're, you're uh, playing basketball. You think that's where your future are, future is. You're pretty good at track, right? At one point, no, shot no. putting disc. I was shot all right. Okay, you did right. a field. All right. all right. I did weight man relays. So yeah. Pretty good. <laughs> so, so you're you're you think basketball is the future, but you end up in yeah. football. Um, obviously, you know it's a it, by its very nature, it's a violent sport. Something that you're 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 hitting somebody over and over again, which totally fine. But when you're 15, 16, you've already got this testosterone and all this energy that you're trying to channel. And in my experience, just talking to folks, a lot of places where people can get in trouble is if they don't have nobody guiding them with that energy. What are some of the lessons you learned from your dad at that age about taking that energy and being creative, not just destructive and channeling it in a positive manner? See, we call it anger in society. Mm -hmm. In sports, we call it adrenaline. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yet and still, the energy is still the same. You're asking to call on a feeling that it feels like pain. It feels like rage. 
but it's under control because you do have certain things that you need to accomplish while you're in that mindset. You see what I'm saying? You just can't go out there maniacally just start grabbing people and tackling whatever. You have to, there's some technique, this form. You have to understand, you know, the situation yeah. and being able to use that element. But it is something that in competing with most people, you have to have. Yeah. I think that when you listen to some of the, you know, the most competitive athletes, they talk about going to that place. Mm-hmm that place where their focus is so in tune with what they're doing, it does appear to be rage. It does appear to be, you know, almost just aggression and anger, but it's also departmentalized. Mm -hmm. You have to be able to know when to use it. And those of us that can call on it when we need it, usually go the furthest. Yeah. You know, if you don't know how to harness it, if you don't know how to manage it, then it encompasses you. It becomes who you are. And you don't really know how to define that in any certain situation. That's how people get into trouble. Yeah. But when you can control that, understanding when it's best to use that situation, because it's it's you have to use it, mm-hmm. especially in certain situations like in the trenches where I grew up. Right. Yeah. There was no hoping that you might not get in contact with a guy. It was inevitable. Yeah. For 60 minutes. Yeah, You ain't no punter. Right. Every play that every time that ball was snapped, someone was touching me and I was touching them. Yeah. We weren't running routes, holding footballs, doing anything like that. We were actually in the in the, the war, if you will trying to establish that line of scrimmage. So the, the game for us was different. And the game is different for a lot of people because there are, you know, what, seven positions on offense. Not sure how many on defense, but either way, there are 11, you know, starters on each side of the football that are doing different things, but yet they all have to be almost cohesive yeah. for this thing to work. It's, it's strange. Well, you and I talked about this last week. We, we mentioned Eddie George yeah. um, in some of our conversations. And, you know, you on the offensive line – you had to make sure that, you know, your quarterback, which I'm presuming mostly was Steve McNair, you know, he didn't get blindsided. Or Moon. Yeah. Or just, I mean, whoever your quarterback mm-hmm. would be, they can do their they can do their job. Yeah. And then you also have to make sure that the running back at the proper hole to run through if you're going to be aggressive. The offensive scheme is to, you know, punch it through. Mm-hmm. And, and like you said, that whole unit has to work together because if one piece breaks, the whole thing collapses. Do you find – Transitioning, you know, once you left the league, transitioning in, into "quote unquote" the normal world as whatever know, normal know. is, yeah, yeah, whatever normal <laughs> is, just a non-professional <laughs> athlete world. Sure. Did you did you find that continuing on that 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 teamwork that need to be a unit? Absolutely not. The premise is still the same. Yeah, it's the need or the, the reliance on someone other than yourself. Mm-hmm. You know, in this industry that we're in, um, a lot of times you have to network and talk with people and there are associations and really it's about relationships. Yep. And that's the exact same thing in a team setting because the biggest thing that actually contributes to a team's success, in my opinion, is chemistry. Yeah. At that level, everyone is talented. Everyone was captain of their football team. Everyone you know, was all American or whatever. But the difference is the work you're willing to put in and to what degree, if you don't like the people you're going to work with, how productive can you possibly be? Yeah. Versus if you love the people you work with, they got to push you out of the building. Yeah. How much more are you accomplishing because you like your environment? And that comes from understanding people. And it comes from, you know, in an essence, needing them. Because that quarterback needs us as linemen. We need him as a quarterback. Same with the running backs. And if you think about it, conversely, we need the defense. Yeah. Because we don't want to be in a track meet having to go out there and score every time we touch the field because that other offense is scoring every time we touch the field. So we need the other side of the football just as much as we need our side of the football. It's all part of this great big jigsaw puzzle 
Yeah. That you can't define what it is until the pieces come together. Hmm. So what, what was different about you or somebody such as yourself? Again, 13 years in the league, what's the average? Two and a half, two, yeah. something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, that's the average. So that means half are even below that. The way averages work, half of people are less than two, half of them are above it. But what was the difference between somebody such as yourself who played for 13 years versus somebody who made it to training camp and then got cut? Even if they were talented. Like you said, everybody was cap- All-American. Sure. Everybody was captain of the football team. Everybody was you know, the man at some point. And then they stopped being the man for some reason. I heard Tom Brady say that one of the keys to their success was a whole lot of luck. Hmm. And I com- immediately empathize with that because if you think about risk in our profession, it surrounds you every step. You never know when that next block, you never know when that next tackle, that next whatever is going to end your career. There's risk that comes along with that. Yeah. Yet we all have to think in our minds a sense of invulnerability. You know what I mean? That we can't be touched even though that's not a reality. But I think that when you start really putting things in focus and trusting the guy next to you, mm-hmm. that's how you all can stay in tune because you never really do know when that last play is. I played 13 years. I thought I might play 14 or 15. Yeah. Then again, sometimes I thought I might only play 10. Yeah. You know what I mean? But you never really know when the end is near until they tap you on the shoulder or ask for your playbook. That's just the reality of, of this industry, okay? Yeah. But I think if you can extrapolate some of the things that, you know, athletes learn, it's just really about being lucky because I could, in an instant, be gone from this for any reason. As a matter of fact, the most horrific injury that I uh, sustained playing football was friendly fire from a former uh, a fellow lineman you really? know I mean? on my own team. Yeah. Wow. So having, you How know. How did that happen? He actually, um, I'm not going to mention the name, doesn't matter. He was actually tossed a guy into my knee. Oh. You know what I'm saying? So as he's you know trying to protect the quarterback and torquing his body to avoid that contact, he ended up tossing the guy right into the back of my leg, which started the first major injury I had. Yeah. You know, so that's friendly fire that I couldn't foresee. Yeah. But, you know, nonetheless, a whole lot of luck, Joe, came into me playing 13 years because the best ability is what? Availability. Hmm. Okay. And if I'm not available to be on the football field, then I won't have that long of a career. Yeah. <laughs> it's just the reality of the situation. Well, it's the ultimate meritocracy. Truth. You know, facts. What do you, what do you bring to the table right now? Yeah, and I'm telling you what, this is a results-based industry, right? Yep. And even some of the nicest, you can be as professional as you want to be. The conundrum we have in society is associating ourselves with reality and, and what we think is reality. In other words, just because a person's winning all the time, let's just say the guy won every single thing that he attempted to do, right? But did it in a junky way, did it in a way that really wasn't inclusive, did it in a way that just really didn't elevate him as a person mm. versus a guy that never won, but made such a communicate, such a connection and a lasting impression on people that changed lives. Which would you want to associate with? The second one. But see how hard that is to associate yourself with the quote unquote loser? Yeah, I, know, I get yeah. it. Yeah, But we would say this person that's a winner that's achieved all these things, no matter how he did it, we tend to follow those that seem to have had that moniker of success, right? Yeah, It's backwards. It is. And a lot of times I was actually talking to my wife about this. So, you know, in the, in the industry you and I are currently in, okay, there's a lot of young guys who crushed it. I mean, I'm talking about 23, 24 financial advisors making a million, million five a year. And I, I've kept track of some of them because they disappear. And then 
every so often I'll Google them because, you know, we are all aware of how, how our businesses are doing. Sure. And all of a sudden you start Googling them, you start seeing all these lawsuits mm. that they're in. Five years ago, they were winners. And I, my wife specifically said like, man, babe, that's a lot of money to make. And I said, not if you got to spend it on attorneys. Preach. Yeah, it's, it's not. So it, it, it's, if, if something comes too quickly or too easily, it's probably not what what it seems to be. But think about what you just said, though. You, you're you're talking about a large amount of wealth that have have been positioned with people with little experience in life. Correct. So when you look at the three components of a personality, the id, ego, and superego, which do you think that youngster is going to feed more? Superego. Exactly. And that doesn't He'll say think responsibility, discipline, right? Well, I mean, that's but that's a mindset. Yeah. I mean, how many old souls do you know? You see what I'm saying? That guy that at 22, years, 23 years old was thinking about, well, I'm gonna give me something, you know, permanent life policy. Yeah. <laughs> you know? It's just not something you think about because you're thinking, you know, the invincibility factor. I'm young. I've got forever to live. Yeah. The songs about that forever young. Yeah. That's in our own minds until we wake up one day and we got three kids, you know, trying to get to that pension age, and we just really want to make it happen. Yeah. But I think it's, you know, ultimately it comes back to those connections that we make as people with each other that carry us through. Because for the longest time after leaving my support group, which was the NFL, I felt lost because I didn't have that same structure of support. Yeah. Until I got where I'm at now. Yeah. And those those similarities to me kind of really outline the true meaning of of success and how to attain success. So, so let's go to draft night, 1993. Ooh, wait. Yeah. So you're, you're, uh, you're what? 21, 22, 22. Yeah. 22. Yeah, 22. So how many rounds are there in, in an NFL draft? Then there were more. I think there were almost 12, but now there's only seven. Okay. 12 rounds of how many picks? 32 picks each round. Okay. So we, we will let the people at home do uh do math, do the math of 32 times 12. Next thing you know, number 13 in the first round, Brad Hopkins. Lights, hat, boom. How do you keep from see, from feeding the superego at that moment? Uh, that's a great question. What are you there, feeling in general? But there, Joe, there had been so much talk about that moment up to that moment that when it happened, it just happened. Yeah. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. Because there are the, you know, the draft reports and then there's the, you know, the interaction with teams and, and other players and you know, I've been talked about coming out of the NFL and playing in the NFL since I was a junior. Yeah. So it really wasn't any new situation for me. It wasn't like all of a sudden, like the day before that day, someone said, hey, you want to go to the draft? I'm like, <gasps> what, yeah. me? No, I've been knowing that this is going to happen. Yeah. As a matter of fact, the draft, the, what was unique about the draft for me was that where everyone thought I was going, I didn't go. Where did they think you were going? The Cleveland Browns. Mm. Sooner or later in the draft? One pick later. Ah, and you got drafted by the Houston Oilers. In a trade. Oh. Right. Interesting. So the, the scenario was Don Maggs, who was the left tackle for the Houston Oilers, went to the Broncos as a free agent, leaving a vacancy. Mm. They felt with Warren Moon and all the other pieces in play, they needed to have a high-impact draft pick to fill that position. That was me. So you started from day one? From day one. Yeah. As a rookie. All 16, 16 games? No. No? 12. Okay. I had a stipulation in my contract that if I started um, – no, I started 11, 
But if I started 12, I was going to get like a quarter million dollar signing bonus. <laughs> so ironic that I only started 11. Yeah, and, interesting. How yeah, that works in, in game six of the season, too. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, we'll talk about that some other time. Yeah. Um, I really had to learn on the fly. Yeah. And all the prognosticators thought that Bill Belichick, who was a Cleveland Browns coach at the time, who had traveled to Champaign, University of Illinois, where I was at a number of times to watch film with me, to talk about what we we're going to do in that season, he was going to be the guy that draft me. Mm. The Oilers traded with the Philadelphia Eagles for their 13th pick so they could get me before the Cleveland Browns could get me. Do you have any idea? I did that morning. Mm. They called, didn't tell me who they were, and they said, how high do we need to go up to get you? <laughs> I'm just thinking, I don't know, number two. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> you know, I just, you know I, did, yeah. I just threw out a number because I knew that, you know, on the slate of linemen, I was supposed to be the third behind Willie Rofe and Lincoln Kennedy. Okay. And as it happened, I was the third tackle taken off the off the board. Um, so I threw out a number, and they said, "Okay, click." And about seven picks later, I got taken. So, wow, yeah, interesting. So, so you know, you again, you go, and I've had other former NFL players describe it like this: you go from the college unit, which is you are definitely a family, mm-hmm. um, especially in big time football in the Big Ten, SEC. Pac-12, like all those. Um, you go to the NFL, you are a business. Right. It's a different culture. And every player is their their own business. Like you said, the reason you ended up on the Houston Oilers, now the Tennessee Titans, um, was because the person who was in your position in free agency went to another team. Exactly. How was that adjustment? I was drafted to the run and shoot. I didn't know what the run or the shoot was when I went into the league. <laughs> That's the reality of it. Okay. I was from a pro set offense. I blocked for Jeff George in college. Howard Griffith was my running back. Had a ton of All-American defensive players. Went to five bowl games. I was captain when I left there, feeling really good about myself. Yeah. To having the most struggle I've ever had in my entire life, trying to learn this system, trying to block grown men, trying to adopt to a, to a culture, a lifestyle of which I wasn't accustomed to. Yeah. To say that my life was a hurricane at that time, would have been an understatement, but I couldn't give the appearance that it was. Yeah. Even though you're 22 and Even you don't know 20, anything. Don't know a thing. Yeah. But football. Yeah. And trying to learn that because it wasn't something I was familiar with. So it was really just about being able to weather the storms of that transition, being able to at least maintain some sort of moniker of confidence when I felt like I was constantly losing. Um, so eventually just, you know, finding ways to get it done. And that can, what, what do you mean by you felt like you were constantly losing? Because I was doing so much learning and doing so much, um, struggling with the offense and struggling with competing against, you know, bigger, stronger, faster athletes that I didn't feel like I was accomplishing anything. Hmm. You know, I, I went from barely having to get out of my stance to, to block defensive linemen in college to, I mean, running for my life in instances to make this thing happen, you know? Yeah. And then when you think about not having to go to classic civ or psychology, you know, or have someone checking me into class, my job being get up and go to work. Yeah. You know, these are the things that, you know, are major adjustments that you have to make. There's no one there to tell you what to do. You know, I mean, in that respect. Yeah. Of course, there, there aren't a lot of, you know, leeways in the league where they shouldn't be. Um, but when it comes to learning what you need to learn, you know, there there are some things that you need to be doing. And if you're not doing them, you don't have very long to last in this career. Do you know who Brandon Jennings is? 
the NBA name, player. Name sounds familiar, but I'm not sure. Yes. So so he was one of the top prospects, college, high school prospects for college, mm-hmm. like 2009. And he decided not to go to high, uh, college. He decided to play a year in Europe. Right. So I think he played in Greece or Israel or somewhere, some, somewhere in the European League. And his rookie season, like, I mean, he's one of the – I think he was the first rookie to ever hit 60 points in a game. Dang in the history of the NBA. And I remember that was so interesting because that was like 2010. And I remember I watched an interview with him where they talked to him about, would you recommend other high school kids go play professionally in Europe instead of going to college? And he said, no. And they said, why? And he said, you'll be, you'll be prepared, but you will not be a celebrity on campus. You will be a professional that is expected to behave oh, wow. like a professional who will be playing against grown men who don't give a crap that you were a good high school player. You'll be playing against 30-year-old men who've got mortgages and three kids who expect you to do your job, and I was not ready for that. Yeah. Their level of desperation is different. And the level of discipline. That too. But then that level of discipline also, it accrues with maturity. Yeah. You don't think the same as a 20-year-old as you do as a 30-year-old. No, because life kicks you in the face. That and things in your life probably have changed to also change your thinking about certain things. You know what I mean? If, If all of a sudden you've gotten married or have a child, now... It's more than just about you. Yeah. You know what I mean? So you have to kind of evolve your thinking. And that comes with, you know, better, making better decisions, but ultimately you have to get there. You know what I'm saying? But the only thing that really helps, I think, is doing the same things consistently. Mm. Repetition was the one thing that, you know, the 10,000 hour thing. Yeah. It, to me makes, it made so much sense because once it becomes, you know, just second nature to me, I'm not thinking about anything. I'm just simply reacting to what I see. Yeah. And that, that makes your job a lot easier because you're dealing with less anxiety. So was there a moment, I know you talked about your dad a lot and him being your hero. And I know there had to be a component to wanting to make your dad proud. Was there a moment specifically, whether it was getting drafted, whether it was getting the first check, whether it was buying your parents a house, where you looked at your dad, you might not have even said anything, but you were like, I did it. I, I, I did this for you. For mm. everything that you've done for me, no, not even a little bit. No, my father was successful in his own right. Yeah, um, and I wasn't trying to be him in that respect. I love hearing my mom laugh. Okay, I love seeing my mom happy. And what I wanted to do was take away anything that she felt was a burden. Mm. You know what I mean? I was a latchkey kid. Both my parents worked. My mom worked second shift, which meant I didn't see her during the week. Yeah. I hated that growing up. Yeah. I wanted to change that. And if I could have my mom be at home for my little sister every day when she got home from school, that's what I was going to do. So you had that moment for your mom. Absolutely. So what was that moment? Was it changing that? Was it just changing her life? And that moment was the first time I bought her first car was the first time that I helped with the mortgage Yeah, was the first time that I moved them to Houston so they could be closer to their grandkids and then moved them again in the next subdivision that I live in right now when we moved to Nashville. Yeah. I'm about family. Yeah. And it starts with the person that started mine, which is my mom. Yeah. And you, you hear a lot of that sentiment from athletes that are closer to the mothers because those mothers were usually the ones that, you know, if absent of a father because he was working or just simply wasn't there, they provided those discipline, that, that nourishment, everything that you needed as a, for, as a person, you know what I mean? And you want to give back to those people that supported you. And 
more than likely it was your mom. Yeah. You know, and, and, you know, I've seen my mother struggle, you know, I've seen her not want to do the things that she had to do for our family to survive. I wanted to give them options period. Yeah. I wanted them to be able to have control of their own destiny and not be at the whim of somebody else and have to do something that they didn't want to do like being home with your family. Yeah. It's interesting. Well, and yeah, you hear it all the time with athletes. Like I'm going to go buy mom a house. That's the first thing they're going to do. Sounds so simplistic, doesn't it? It does. But think about Darius guys. He comes to mind, former LSU running back drafted to the Redskins, got hurt in his first year, would have had a tremendous year had he been healthy. He actually grew up in a very, very bad area. I think in Baton Rouge or somewhere in Louisiana. Um, He was lucky enough to have a family take him in so he could attend private school and got a tremendous education and an opportunity to play at the highest level. Sounds like the blind side. You're right. Yeah. While his mom and brother struggled across town. Yeah. Brother got into the criminal element. And all he ever wanted to do, Darius, was to take his mom and brother out of those situations. Because a lot of, of the motivation in my profession comes from a level of desperation mm. that you're trying to help alleviate because you've been a part of it as a kid. If you've ever had to do homework amidst gunshots or have to walk past metal detectors to go to history class, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Those difficulties in life, as you become more accomplished, you want to try and take away from the people that you love the most. Yeah. And that becomes what drives you, and what motivates you. It's not playing the game. It's not winning. It's it's almost a third world mentality. Yeah. When you look at how some of the third world countries, families are so large, just in the hopes that one or two of them make it so that way they can send money back to help the family. Yeah. That's the design. Yeah. I'm not saying that's the case in this country, but you can definitely see where when you talk, talk about a middle schooler, you know, making millions of dollars and all of a sudden the pam- the family starts pouring its resources into that potential. What are they saying? Well, this is our way out. Yeah. This is our savior. You see what I'm saying? And you know what? Sometimes that, that reality is hard to deny Joe. When you're looking at a six, seven, eighth grader. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. You're looking at Le- LeBron James in eighth grade. He's your savior. Bruh, when Adidas and Nike are showing up at your basketball games and all of a sudden you got all these logos from colleges st- stepping into the gym to see what you're doing. What does that say? Does that say he's going to get a great education? Yeah. No, <laughs> that's not what that says. That says there are millions of dollars in your future. That's what that says. Yeah. Now, how do you handle that is the question. How you handle that is hoping that you can associate yourself with someone that has experienced it. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? For me, I didn't have that vessel to kind of show me some of the pitfalls that, you know, being a professional athlete, you know, can come along with. I'm in a unique situation, Joe, where my son is doing the exact same thing that I'm doing. Mm -hmm. And his projections are right lock and step with what mine were. Yeah. The difference between he and I is what? The guidance. I've been through it. Something my dad always says, you can't you can't go buy experience at the grocery store. You have to feel it on your own skin. Amen. And and I don't again that kind of goes back to the chemistry thing. If you've got good chemistry on a team, some of the some of the old guys on the team might take interest in the younger guys and try to help them. If you got bad chemistry, they might look at it and say, That's not my problem. I remember a guy I played with, I'm not gonna mention his name, but you know who he is. It seemed like he had such an extremely volatile personality. 
you know, it's always <laughs> in the news about some craziness, right? I know exactly what you're talking about. But I'll tell you what, if at least once or twice a week, he didn't just sit down in my locker with me and say, what's up, Pop? Really? I was 13 years older than him. Yeah. Think about that. Yeah. My locker was the first locker when you walk through the doors after practice. So, of course, you know. And, and you're was, the old guy. I was the oldest yeah, guy on the team. The old guy, but to have someone sit there and ask you questions, you know, and really want to know legitimately about your story. You yeah. know what I'm saying? They're showing some interest, some sincerity. Sincerity. And I sense that. You know what I mean? So I was able to see just different perspectives about people. Yeah, and well, and that's there's always my my side, your side, and then there's the truth. Like, like I mean, as soon as you mentioned, as soon as you mentioned, you described that player, I didn't even have to think about. It. I knew exactly what you were talking about. But yeah, you're right. There's there's what the the headline says, and then there's the reality of, you know, one of the things we don't think about with with athletes, for example, particularly college and high school athletes, when a quarterback doesn't show up for the game the way he's supposed to, or, uh, you know, the team crump. You don't know if that person just broke up with their significant other of three years or if their parent just found out they're mm. sick or if, you know, there's a there's a million different things. We, we pretend like these human beings aren't humans, that they're just in some bubble and, and whatever opinion I have from a message board or, or, or a radio show or whatever it may be, it's how it is. Like, no, these are these are real human beings with real problems. With real emotions, with with uh, you know things that that make them reconsider whether they even want to do what they're doing. Yeah, but Joe, how unique is that thought that you just had right there when you're talking about numbers and names on a jersey? It's very and, unique, and, and people have a self self centering interest in the game anyway. They just want their team to win. Yeah, because guaranteed, if you missed the free throw that could have given their team the win, what would they think about you? They would hate you. They would hate you. Yeah, you wear the jersey. But they, they can't make that free throw either. It's not about that. It's about winning. We just talked touched on that, didn't we? And that's why I personally, a pet peeve of mine, I'm, when I've got certain sports teams that I enjoy following, that, you know, I'm a Tennessee fan. I went to Tennessee. I root for the Titans, the Preds, the Grizzlies. But I never say we when well, I just. Why not? Because I'm not, I support, but I don't say we because. I'm. I feel like it's almost taking away from the people who are on that field or on that ice or on that. It's it's their success and it's their failure. I'm gonna, I'm gonna tell you. I look at it a different way. How you look at it? I look at it as you only having one foot in. Really? Yeah. Oh, I'm pretty loyal. Because, because when I said when you don't say we, we is possessive. We says that's mine. Okay. We're yours. Okay. But when you don't say we, we're not yours. I drive three good. hours each way That's and true. pay tickets to go. You're, I I, w- I want you to say we because I want you to feel the association with us. Good, bad, or indifferent, you're there for us. You see what I'm saying? Just like a family would be. That's the difference. Fanatical is short for – or fan is short for fanatical. We all yeah, yeah. that, right? But nowhere in that fanaticism does there seem to be a word of loyalty. You know, because how, fa- how quickly do we change our loyalties to a team that actually is giving us that euphoric feeling of winning? Versus staying with a team and struggling. In other words, if you go up to Cleveland, okay, before Baker Mayfield got up there and, and this the apparent change that's going on in Cleveland, to say you're a Browns fan was almost a joke, wasn't it? Yeah. But if you're a true Browns fan, you didn't care telling people you're a Browns fan because those were your Browns. And eventually, something was going to happen like a Baker Mayfield and give you seven wins in a season. 
and then maybe even the guess from a lot of pundits that they could win the division this year. But you have to be there from the grassroots level to experience the growth. You know, just don't set your lawn chair down on top of that beautiful grass. Get out there and lay some seed and kill some weeds and enjoy that yard. You know what I'm saying? See, I know what you're talking about, and I agree with you. But I like I'll use my own personal fanhoods as an example. Memphis Grizzlies. I've been a fan since they would win 20 games in a season. Right. And all these friends around me in middle school and high school are like, oh, the Grizzlies are trash. In college, Zebo comes along, Tony Allen comes along, all these guys come along. He's like, I'm a Gri- they're Grizzlies fans. I'm like, where you been? I'm driving, yeah, right. I'm driving six hours to come to a Grizzlies game. I live in Knoxville. Grizzlies suck right now. I'll still drive three hours. See? But I still don't say we. But I do, ah. but I do love them. Okay. I, I love seeing them do well. Even when they're doing poor, or let's use the Vols for an, as an example. There is a certain pride I take in, like, that is my university. That is my alma mater. And I'll go to a game, and I'll tailgate, and I'll support them. And you know what? It's been a hell of a ride. It's been hella hard being a Tennessee fan the last 10 years, yeah. which has been my entire fanhood <laughs> of Tennessee. But it, it's, it's still, to me, it's like, man, I just personally feel like I'm taking something away from them, if I say we, I say my team. Right. But the difference is this. The difference I would say is your connection with the team. You were a Memphis Grizzly fan, regardless of what they did. You drove to see the games. Correct. You supported them regardless. Okay. You almost had the thought that they were your family. Yeah. And how family disappoints you is different than how someone or something you don't care about disappoints you. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. So when you admit that there's an association, that's my team. Those are my Grizzlies. And even if they did fall short of the goal you would hope that they accomplished, you don't look at that loss the same way you would as if they were they you didn't care about them, or that's as true. if it was someone you wanted to lose. You see what I'm saying? Well, I also look at it from a communal standpoint. So I'm not a Vanderbilt fan, for example. Right. But I want Bandy to do well. Me too. Because I live in Me Nashville. too. I think it's good for the community. Me too. I want it, exactly. Yeah. I, I listen. I'm a Big Ten guy. I'm not an SEC guy. Yeah. But I live in Nashville, and I would take Bandy over UT because guess what? I don't live in Knoxville. Yeah. I see these kids every now and then bumping into them in the golden black jerseys, you know? Yeah. I can drive down West End and, and experience the traffic that a game would every now and then. Yeah. You know, when some biggest coming into town, right? Yeah. Would experience. So that does make them, in essence, my team because this is my city's team. Yeah. That's kind of the way I feel about it. Yeah. I'm not an alum. And if Illinois were playing Vanderbilt, I would hope that they would lose by 100. <laughs> but when I'm here yeah. in my community, like you just said, I want to be a part of that. And Vanderbilt is part of my community. Well, let's talk about this community because this is a actually th- this event I wanted to get to is a, is a big deal. So two things happened in 2000 that are uh, in epic lore when it comes to Nashville sports. The Music City Miracle and then Super Bowl 34, right? So you started in both of those games, correct? Yeah. All right. Music City Miracle is like the most euphoric experience Nashville <laughs> had ever exper- experienced. I mean, it. it I, wa- I didn't even live in the well, – yeah, I didn't even live in the United States at the time, but I've seen videos on YouTube of it, and it looks bonkers. Uh, and then Super Bowl 34, you're two and a half yards away, basically, yeah. at yeah. the last play of the game. So talk about the – the similarity and the difference between those two experiences being in the prime of your career, being a starter, being part of that unit, the good and the bad. Well, first off, the music city miracle was part of the crescendo of that season. Yeah. Cause it's a wild card game, right? It was yeah. the first one. Um, 
for us, it was a culmination of the previous two seasons. Okay. In 96, we came up to Neyland Stadium to play the Redskins in a preseason game. Okay. We didn't realize it was a tester to see what the state of Tennessee would do to respond to pro football. Was it sold out? Oh, yeah. And then some. 110,000 people. Easily. Yep. Most of them Redskins fans, but either way. Yeah. They showed up. <laughs> but what it did was spark the discussion that our then owner, Bud Adams, had with the city of Nashville about us moving. Yeah. And in 97, when we moved to Nashville without a stadium built, and we were basically renting out space in the back of a Baptist medical center in Bellevue, Tennessee, you know, 17 miles outside of the city with no real facilities, no real weight room, no real anything. And you're a pro team. And we were a pro team. And then we doubled that and then we played our home games in Memphis. Yeah. So which meant every weekend we were leaving the city of Nashville to go play someplace else. Yeah. That didn't want you there. That didn't want us. Then to double down playing in Vanderbilt Stadium on the turf. You know, we at least didn't have to travel as much in 98. Yeah. But in 99, and I remember the spring or, or maybe even the summer before that when Jeff Fisher took us over to see our new um, practice facility being built. It was all just, um, you know, um, drywall and, and you know, stuff being constructed, you know, some cement um, plats and whatnot. And um, that was the beginning of us, the naming of the stadium, the, the dropping of Oilers from Tennessee. Oh, yeah, that's right, because they were right. the Tennessee Oilers, Tennessee Oilers for, exactly. the first two years. And then really We've got a lot of oil rigs here, as you can tell. <laughs> <laughs> but then you can start to see then this, the city really take ownership of who we were when they named us the Titans and gave us Adelphia Coliseum. Mm. We had a brand new stadium brand new name, a brand new lease on life, so to speak, because the, the Houston community was tired of the leverage that Bud was holding, you know, over them to keep the Oilers in Houston. And they just were really ready for the situation to be done. So they weren't really supportive of us staying. Yeah. And to finally be at a home where we can, you know, enjoy the support of a team. That's what created the chemistry to have such an unbelievable year. You know what I'm saying? So it was the culmination of the previous two years of struggling and trying to put it together that ultimately put us in a position to take advantage of the almost insanity that was taking place in that stadium every single weekend that we had a home game. It was interesting. So I, I don't remember, was the music? Yeah, the Music City of Miracle was in Nashville. It was in Nashville. Okay. And of course, this, this, this Atlanta Super Bowl 34. Crazy experience because you know you usually think about Atlanta, the Peachtree State, you know, yeah, yeah. warm, you know, fall nights or winter nights or whatever. It was like January though. It, it was January, but still, Atlanta doesn't experience snowstorm or ice storms. Yeah, they did that week. Yeah, <laughs> so we had that to deal with, and uh, of course, playing against the greatest show on turf, we were the underdogs by far because this was Kurt Warner and Marshall Falk and Isaac Bruce. You know, Kevin Carter was a defender there from them. And they had, you know, tons of, of talent on that team that basically just ran run, run rim shot of the rough shot of the league. Yeah. Now, ironically, we beat them once during the regular season. Yeah. But um, So you we, had some confidence coming yeah, in. for sure. Yeah. But, you know, there still was not the expectancy that we would come out of that W, coming out of that with a win. Yeah. And we were just that close to doing it. Yeah. I mean, that, that video hurts to watch because it really is two and a half yards. You know, if you watch that video – in its totality at the end, you can see me walking off because the camera just ran right up to my face. And there's all this ticker tape, you know, dropping down around me and stuff. And I remember saying to myself, I don't want any of this touching me because it's not for me. 
Oh, but it's ticker tapes coming out of his, you know, yeah, how you got dodge ticker tape. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, it's just all so over. So it's just literally, you know, the the ticker tape bath kind of reminding you that you lost because it wasn't for you. Mm. And it's such a metaphor for life because so often we're two and a half yards away from any goal that we're striving for in life. I mean, obviously it's a big deal in, in your experience, but you don't consider yourself a failure in life because you didn't mm-hmm. win a game. Mm-hmm. That, it's just in that moment, it's such a strong just comparison to like, man, how often in my life have I been two and a half yards away from something great? Right. And I will say that I think that moments like that, you know, experiencing just how close it was to be a champion. Yeah. You can put those in perspective and use them as fuel. You know what I mean? Because you now know the, you can confidently reach those very precipices. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. It's possible. Yeah. How about that? So where would you say you're a champion in life? Mm, I wouldn't. I, I I wouldn't say I'm a champion. I would say that I am a competitor. Mm. A competitor in that I'm not a master of anything, but I am a jack of all trades. Yeah. And I try and be. Yeah. I like diversity. Yeah. I like being able to not spread myself thin, yeah. but at least experience different walks, different things. And I don't have to be the best at every single one. But I do want to compete. That's what makes me happy. I think that's I think that's powerful because the moment we stop competing is the moment we basically give up. Man, what if you don't have anything to compete for? I think you can always create something. You can always be better. And that's part of, I mean, we talked about this. The mission of the podcast is just to help young men, really anybody. It doesn't have yeah. to be just young men. Yeah. Just get better. That constant progression in life, that that constant imitation of something great until you either reach it or you get as close as possible. And you try to, I do believe that a rising tide lifts all boats. Mm-hmm. Now, imagine if all of us are imitating that ideal and working towards becoming better and we're lifting each other up along with that. And then what happens is as we're lifting each other, the bar keeps getting higher too. The standard keeps getting higher. And we and, and that's why I think having these stories and having these conversations where, look, I never played in the league. I never played in the NFL. I can't, I can't know what it's like. But you know what I can do? I can listen to your story or Freddie's story or Jay's story or whoever's story and learn from those experiences and try to apply them to other circumstances where it might not be playing football, but it might be something similar where I got to work with yeah. a team where I've got whatever. But that's what experience does. Yeah. That's why in certain situations, if you're of not the experience that you need to be, to be successful, you associate yourself with people that are experienced in those areas to be successful. Um, they help you. They give you the knowledge that there's no way in the world that you could have the, the insight into unless you've experienced it. So that maturity, that, that level of life that they've experienced to now articulate that to you, it helps you in knowing what's good. It's like ways. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. I remember when I plug my ways in, I'm going down the freeway and it tells me what, maybe a couple of miles before I'm getting there, when I need to get off. Yep. It tells me where the potholes are. It tells me where the police traps are. It tells me all the things in life or on that freeway that could get me into trouble. Right. Yep. What if I didn't have the ways? I'm just blowing down the freeway. You'd be living in 1999. I get a ticket. <laughs> I'd probably bust a rim for for potholes, and a lot of times I miss my exit, wouldn't I? Yeah. 
We just need sometimes that ways of guidance. And sometimes you just need to listen to the ways too. Wow. Never have, but then again, we're in a different kind of era, Joe. Yeah. Because I don't know many couples that would sit there, hey, turn that ways off. I know where I'm going. <laughs> uh, 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 you <laughs> Reach in there and grab that atlas. <laughs> the giant map. The you remember Ram McNally yeah, map? Used to, <laughs> both your parents were spread out. Oh, that's seat. so funny. That's so funny. And you know what's crazy? My kids will never know that. Never know what an atlas is. Like, no, no idea. What is like just trying to figure out a city you've never been to before? Phone book. Yeah, what exactly. Is that? So, uh, well, I got to ask you this. I told you, I told you this is how I end the podcast. But all right, we go back to eighteen-year-old Brad. Yeah. All right, knowing all that you know about yourself, and knowing all that you know in general, what's one piece of advice if you could go back to eighteen-year-olds? You, you're about to, you're about to be on campus. You know, you're you're uh, you're starting the journey of college football and, and the remainder of your life, wide-eyed, bushy-tailed. What's the piece of advice you give them? Don't worry about making mistakes. Mm, why? Because you learn just as much from a mistake as you do from from a success. Wow. Think about how much you learned from not accomplishing your goal. Think about how much you learned about yourself from experiencing failure. Think about how much you learned about yourself from trying to get where you want to go and you just can't. You learn so much about yourself because you focused on what it took to take you away from that situation. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. So there was just as much winning in that losing as if you had already won it. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. Because a lot of times when we win something, we don't go back and dissect it and figure out how we do. We just try and do it again. Yeah. But if you lost, what did I do wrong? What did they do? What was the situation like to where I didn't accomplish what I needed to accomplish? It seemed like I made a mistake. But there was so much more that came out of that mistake. So the mistake is saying that there was a mistake. Yeah. Wow. It's powerful. I like it. Well, Brian, thanks for coming on. Anytime, Joe. I appreciate it. Um, again, for I'll, I'll make sure to you know put a little profile and a bio and social media and things like that in, in the episode. But again, for everybody listening, as always, if you've got questions, ideas, people to interview, millennialmanhoodcip at gmail.com. Also, if you have any complaints, uh, the only criticism we're allowed uh, we're allowing here is constructive criticism. Don't just complain; you got to offer a solution. But outside of that, again, thanks uh, thanks for coming on, and we'll talk to you guys soon.